Go ahead and turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. And if you're like, where is Zechariah? Just go to your New Testament, the beginning of it, the book of Matthew. Turn left for a few pages and you'll be right there. Because Zechariah is right at the end of the Old Testament. Now, for those of you who've been with us for a while, um, you know that we already have gone through the book of Zechariah recently. Was it too long ago? But I wanted us to revisit Zechariah chapter 4 because I feel like it is a very very important for us at this moment that we're in as a church. It has some very important truths that we need to have impressed upon us because it's not too hard to see that as a church, especially if you've been here for a while, you know that our church is in difficult times right now. We've gone through some difficulties. We've had some people leave Um, We've shrunk a little bit, changing in leadership, and all these things could create some turmoil. But our heart, our hope, is to see this church grow and thrive once again. That is what we want to see. But to do that, we have a difficult road ahead of us. It's not going to be easy. Um, As I've talked with people at BMW to um, Biblical Ministries Worldwide, as I've talked with them to get advice on how to lead the church, one of the things they always say is, Zach, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be hard work. It won't be easy. And so as we look at this road ahead, it could be like we've been wandering through this valley and finally we found a path but it's up straight up the side of this steep, huge mountain. And it's like, okay, that's where we want to go. How in the world are we going to find the strength to climb this mountain? How are we going to get there? And so when we face situations like that, we can be tempted to look at things from a wrong perspective, and we might feel like, well, God has abandoned us. Why aren't we seeing results from what we're doing? Why aren't we seeing success and more things like that? And we could be tempted to think, well, God must not be working in us right now. Or even if we do try to move forward, where are we going to find the strength and the power to keep going? Because like we said, it's not going to be easy. And so where are we going to look for power to endure to keep going when the going gets tough. So these issues, these questions are real and they are serious for us right now as a church. We need to have solid answers for this as we try to move forward. So does the Bible speak to that? Yes. And it's in Zechariah chapter 4, which is where I've had you turn. If you remember, if you were with us when we went through Zechariah, I'll give you a little refresher, especially since we have several here who were not. In Zechariah, the book is written to people who have been in captivity in another country 
These are God's people, Israel. And God has finally brought them back to Israel. He has brought them back to their land, but they have the difficult task ahead of rebuilding God's temple. God has told them to rebuild God, His temple and eventually the city of Jerusalem. Now this is a band of refugees, essentially. They're not wealthy aristocrats. They're not a mighty army. And God has given them this task of rebuilding. And even then, when they try to do it, they face opposition. Enemies from outside, enemies from inside discourage them. They even use force to try and stop them. And that's where Zechariah comes in, in the historical setting. These people are discouraged. They've stopped working on this work that God has given them. And God raises up the prophet Zechariah to encourage these people and show them this is how you can move forward. This is how you can have power and have the right perspective for God's work. And so... I don't think it's too hard to see how that relates to our situation. We want to rebuild this church. We know that God wants to build this church. He wants this community to be reached for Christ. He wants us to thrive spiritually. But it is a hard road ahead. And so the thing that God tells Zechariah here in chapter 4 applies directly to us. Where do we find power for this work? How do we have the right mindset, the right perspective as we go about this work of rebuilding the church just like Zechariah and the Israelites were rebuilding the temple? And so what God says here in Zechariah chapter 4 is that God's work must be done with God's power and perspective. And we're going to expand on those ideas as we go through, but God's work must be done with God's power and God's perspective. So let's read Zechariah chapter 4, and then we'll pray as we look at this. It says, The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand there with a bowl on its top. It has seven lamps on it and seven channels for each of the lamps on its top. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? Don't you know what they are? replied the angel who was speaking with me. I said, No, my lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. I asked him, 
What are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further. What are the two olive branches beside the two gold conduits from which golden oil pours out? Then he inquired of me, Don't you know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, that it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it is absolute truth that we can rely on. And I pray you would help us to do that this morning as we hear it now. God, please give me grace. Help me to preach your word accurately and clearly and effectively, and most of all, in the power of your spirit. As we just read, these things cannot be done by our power or our might, but only by your Spirit. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us, that you would open our eyes to see these truths, not just to understand them mentally, but that we would see that this is reality. It's part of the world that we live in. Humble us to rely on you, and to give you the glory and the honor that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this vision here is part of a series of visions that Zechariah has been receiving. This is the fifth one, and it's another vision. And the first half of the vision shows us that God's work must be done with God's power. Now, we read what this vision looked like, but I think it's helpful to have a picture of it. So this is probably something like what Zechariah saw. When it talks about a lampstand in this chapter, it's talking about a menorah, the typical Jewish lantern that you would see. So that's what it's talking about, is a menorah is the lampstand. And the connection is that the menorah is a symbol for the temple. So remember I said that Zechariah and the other um, exiles that had returned, their task was to rebuild God's temple. So the lampstand there, the menorah, is a symbol for the temple. And we know that because throughout the Old Testament, as God gave instructions for building the temple, there were specific instructions for for putting these lampstands in the temple. And the temple actually had ten of them. There was a lot of lampstands in there. And if you were to go to Israel today, they have dug up um, archaeological sites. There is a first century synagogue that they have found. So a synagogue from the time when Jesus was on earth. They found it in the town of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. And they've noticed every synagogue had these little temple stones in them. And what they were was showing that Even though there were these synagogues all over the place, they were saying, we are united with the temple. And they would have these stones in there that were like little miniature sculptures of the temple in Jerusalem. And the symbol that they would put on it is the menorah. If you can kind of see it there on that side, there's the lampstand. That was the symbol saying we are connected with the temple in Jerusalem. So all the way back to the first century, several hundred years before, even then in Zechariah's time, the lampstand, the menorah, 
represents the temple and its work. So that's one piece of this vision, is that God is talking about their work of rebuilding the temple. And then it has these olives in it. And your translation probably says olive tree. In Hebrew, the word is literally just olive. And it depends on how it's being used in the passage, whether it's talking about an olive, a a tree, just a branch. I think this picture probably gets it right, where it's just a branch or like a little segment, because down in verse 12, if you look there, Zechariah is questioning, and he says, what are the two olive branches? And there the Hebrew actually uses the word for like a cluster of olives, just a a bunch, like a cluster of grapes or olives. So I think the vision is you've got these two clusters of olives, and there's these pipes that pour olive oil into the bowl, and from the bowl, the olive oil goes down to the lamp and fuels the lampstand. So it's an oil lamp. Now, what does all this represent? Well, it says that this is God's word to Zerubbabel in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So this message is a message from God, and it's for the governor of Israel. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and he was leading Judah at this time as they rebuilt the temple. And he says, the message is that it's not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this also shouldn't be a surprise to us. If we're familiar with the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, whenever someone was anointed with olive oil, that was symbolic of the Holy Spirit empowering them for a certain task. So, if we break it down a little bit, I know this is getting kind of detailed and weighty, but it's going to help us understand it. So we've got the olive oil. That represents the Holy Spirit's power. It's flowing down to the lampstand. That represents the work on the temple. So this is a promise and a reminder of the need for the Holy Spirit's power in rebuilding the temple. That these people can't do it by themselves. They must do it in, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does this vision tell us about God's power? Well, first off, it says that God gives power in our weakness. And we know that, like we said, from the historical context, these people didn't have massive financial resources. They didn't have a huge military. They were a somewhat small group of people who had returned from the exile, and they were trying to do this all on their own. Now, later, God would give them help through other nations, but at this point, they had only faced opposition. In verse 6, like it says, this is not by strength, it is not by might. So this work that God wants them to do is not going to be accomplished in their own strength. And if you remember the vision, it wasn't these massive olive trees, these impressive trees. It was just a couple clusters of olives, just a few branches. It's not that impressive looking. So God gives power in our weaknesses. This is the position, 
excuse me, that he puts us in so that we can receive his power. And we see this pattern all throughout Scripture. We've looked at these verses not too long ago, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Paul here says, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's exactly what um, God is showing us here in Zechariah's vision. That when we are weak, then we are strong in God's strength. He empties us of our own strength to fill us with his strength. And this gets ahead a little bit into how we think about these things, the perspective. But when we go through things like physical illness or our car breaking down or financial troubles or as a church when we are going through difficult times, Yes, those things are hard, they are difficult, they might hurt, but we have to think about them that this is part of God's plan for us in filling us with His power to do His work. So how do we get that power, though? God says it is through His Spirit. Look at verse 6 again. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when we're understanding this, we have to be a little careful because a lot of people think that the Holy Spirit is just some kind of force or energy that emanates from God, kind of like the force in Star Wars or something like that, that is not the case. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God himself, and he is the one who gives us power because true ministry, God's true work, cannot be accomplished in our strength. It must be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit as He empowers us. So no matter how strong or impressive something looks outwardly, if it does not have the Spirit, it is powerless. So if I get up here and I've prepared all week to preach this, and I preach my heart out to you guys, and the Spirit's not there, It was useless. But if I preach and it builds you up in your faith and you grow, that wasn't me. It's not because I was super eloquent or I spoke loudly or whatever. It's because the Holy Spirit worked through me and he worked in your heart. That is how ministry happens. And if we want to be a church that radiates with the beauty of Jesus Christ, It's going to be because the Spirit works in us and transforms us to be like that. 
If we want to see people who are lost come to know Jesus and have a relationship with Him and grow to be mature Christians, it's not going to happen because we have fancy programs and flashy advertising and amazing music and wonderful intellectual arguments to convince them. It's going to happen because the Spirit works in their heart and saves them. That is how ministry happens. So if we want to see this church grow and thrive once again, we have to have God's power working in us and through us by His Spirit. That is how we will see this church grow and thrive. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't do tangible things like make sure our music sounds nice or make sure our building looks nice and clean. Those are honoring to God. They are a good testimony. And many times the Spirit works through those things as steps along the path towards bringing someone to Christ. But what, when we do those things, when we clean the church, or when we try to make our music sound as best as it can, or whatever, we have to depend on God in those things. We can't rely on those things in and of themselves. So this is a somber reminder, and it is a gracious promise. If we try to do God's work, without God's Spirit, it would be like trying to run a car on a pair of AA batteries. You're not going to get anywhere with that, okay? (laughs) But if we've got the Holy Spirit, we have more than enough power to do what God has called us to do. And God has graciously promised us that. And it's like He's saying to us, don't be anxious about this difficult time that you are in. Don't worry that you feel weak. I know you're weak. I've put you there because I don't use human strength in my work. Your weakness actually puts you in the perfect place to receive my power. And so that's where we are right now. We are small We are trying to do God's work. And so we are in the perfect place to humble ourselves and say, God, we need your power. Please empower us by your spirit. What a gracious gift he has given us. But the question does remain, how do we get the spirit's power? How do we in this moment of weakness, how do we turn and seek the Spirit's power? Well, because the Spirit is God, He can sovereignly pour out His power wherever and whenever He chooses. And every true Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. So we have access to this. If you have been saved by God's grace in Jesus, you have access to this because the Holy Spirit lives in you. But if you think about the vision, remember there was the two channels that poured the oil to the bowl and then to the lamp? There's things that we can do to block those channels. 
And there's things we can do to open them up so that when the Holy Spirit pours out His power, it's a a clean pipe for it to come through to us. So what, what are these things? How do we get the Spirit's power? Well, the first would be Spirit-empowered leaders. Spirit-empowered leaders. And that's right in this vision because he's speaking to Zerubbabel, the governor who was leading this rebuilding project in Israel. And especially if you look at verse 14, the very last verse. So if we look at the vision again, there's the two olive branches there. And Zechariah asks, what are these olive branches? And the angel says in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And that refers to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the high priest at that time. If I'm remembering right, I think it was Joshua. But, yeah, so how does the Holy Spirit's power get to the lamp? It comes from the olive branches, and those are Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two leaders who are leading this rebuilding project. And we're going to look at that closer towards the end So we need spirit-empowered leaders. And if you read through the book of Acts for the church, what's the pattern that you see over and over again? They found deacons who were full of the Holy Spirit. They had elders who were full of the Holy Spirit. All throughout Acts, the people leading the church are those who are empowered by the Spirit. And so as a church, this this is really for me. I have to make sure that I am walking in the Spirit as I seek to minister to you. And if we seek more leadership, we must evaluate these men. Is your lifestyle walking in the Spirit? Or are you trying to do ministry in your own power? That is so important for our church as we move forward. But secondly, the Bible The Spirit's power comes through the Bible, through God's Word. Even this vision, like it says, is the Word of God to Zechariah and to Zerubbabel. But all throughout Scripture, the Spirit and the Word are so closely connected. You almost can't separate the two. One passage, just an example. 2 Peter 1.21 No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is not just the product of men. The Bible is ultimately the product of God as He worked through men, as the Holy Spirit inspired men to write these words. And so where do we seek the Spirit's power? It's in the Word of God. Of God. We have to be filling our hearts and minds with the Bible. We have to be seeking to live in submission to what the Bible says. That is how the Spirit pours out His power on us. And then finally, prayer. We get the Holy Spirit's power through prayer. Again, in the book of Acts, this is a very common pattern. Just one passage, Acts 4.31. When they had prayed, 
The place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. So when we have our prayer services every first Sunday of the month, this is one of the most important reasons that we do that, is because our church must have the Spirit's power, and so we must seek the Spirit's power in prayer. And even in your own individual prayer lives, how can you be praying for the church? Let me give you some suggestions. Here are some specific ways that you can be praying for Rocky Mountain Bible Church. Number one, pray for more spirit-empowered leaders. I can't do this all on my own. (laughs) We are talking. Last week, you know, we had a couple visiting with us from West Virginia. They want to move out here to serve in a church somewhere. Pray for people like that to come and to help us do the work here. Secondly, pray for me personally to have time and energy to do God's work. Um, I just, I need this. I need your prayers. And I'll tell you what, when someone tells me, hey, I, I prayed for you today or I'm praying for you, man, you have no idea how encouraging that is. That is so encouraging. So, Please, please do pray for me. I need the energy, I need the time to do the things that God has called me to do here. Next, pray for the Spirit to work in people's hearts through the Bible. That could be in your own heart for the Spirit to work. That could be people that come here regularly. That could be people, lost people that we don't even know yet. But pray that as the Word is proclaimed, as we share the Gospel with people, that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and save them and draw them to Christ. And then finally, pray for wisdom and provision to implement practical strategies. Like I said, it's not wrong to try and do things like make our building look nice. We need to do practical things like that because it honors God with how we steward the facilities that He's given us. And so pray for wisdom as we try to make improvements, as we try to make plans to rebuild the church. Pray for wisdom that we would know what to do and how to do it. And pray that God would provide the resources necessary for us to do those things. So if you're looking for practical ways to pray for the church, there's four of them. Spirit-empowered leaders, time and energy, the spirit to work in people's hearts through the Bible, and for wisdom and provision for practical strategies. So as the Spirit empowers us, what does He empower us to do, though? Well, the vision says that God gives power for mountainous work. Look at verse 7. It says, What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. So here, they're looking at this work of rebuilding the temple, and they're saying, it's like a huge mountain. How are we ever going to do this? And the angel says, this is going to be like a plain. That mountain's going to be demolished, and it's going to be easy for you to walk across. 
And so God does put mountains in our lives sometimes. Following Christ is not just a smooth sailing, easy path. He brings us to these mountains, and sometimes he removes it as we depend on him. Sometimes he helps us go around it. Sometimes he helps us go up it. Sometimes we just got to get our shovel and dig through it. But we're relying on God the whole time. And that's the point. That's what God wants us to do. He puts these difficulties in our lives so that we will rely on Him. That's how God operates. And why? Because God gives power for His glory. This is why God does everything. The end of verse 7 says that they will bring out the capstone, the finishing touch to the temple, and they will shout, Grace! Grace to it! So when they finish this temple, it'd be really easy to say, Wow, Zerubbabel! Awesome job, man! Or, man, those construction workers, they're so awesome! But no, they acknowledge that it is by grace alone that they do this work. It is only through God's power. And that's why God lets us have weaknesses in our lives. That's why He gives us power through His Spirit. is because then God gets the glory. And doesn't that sound like a pretty sweet deal? God gets the glory and we get divine power from the Spirit. And we don't have to rely on our own weak, limited strength. That's awesome. God is so good to do that. And that is why God's work must be done with God's power and God's perspective. Because then God gets the glory. But when we're in a weak, a difficult position like we are right now, it can be really easy to doubt God's power. When it feels like everything's falling apart, we can say, really? Really, God? Like, are you sure you're giving me your power? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. Can I really trust this? So we need not just power, but we need God's perspective as well. And that's what the second half of this vision is about. God's work must be done with God's perspective. Look at verses 8 through 14. We'll read them again. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. I asked him, what are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold conduits from which golden oil pours out? Then he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so the first thing we see about God's perspective is that he gives it through his word. So we've seen already that this vision comes to Zechariah from God. Verse 6 says that this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Verse 8 again says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. 
So how do we find God's perspective on things? You know, do we climb up one of these mountains out here and we sit and wait for the wind to blow and give us chills? And then we know that, oh, okay, now I'm doing the right thing because I got this mystical feeling. Do we just go to some mystical guru and he reads some tea leaves for us and tells us our future? How do we find God's perspective? We can't rely on what our gut tells us. We can't rely on our feelings. Feelings are important, but they're not a stable foundation for knowing the truth. We need something objective. We need something outside of us in black and white that tells us what the truth is. And that something is what we've already mentioned, the Bible. It is God's Word. He has given it to us right here so that we can read it and we can know how God thinks about certain things. This is one major reason God has given us the Bible. If He hadn't given it to us, we would never know certain things about God about the world, about ourselves. God reveals things to us in the Bible so that we can know them. So again, I'm urging you, saturate yourself with the Bible. Be like a sponge that soaks it up. Be like a steak that sits in the marinade of God's Word until it takes on the flavor of the Bible. We want to be like someone described John Bunyan. If you cut him, he would bleed Bible. That's what we need. And so if you, if you have questions about that, like, how do I do that? How do I have a plan for, for reading the Bible? Please talk to me. I would love to help you set up something like that because this is so important. You cannot grow. We cannot have God's power in us without God's Word. And then as we move on through this vision, God tells us several things about how His perspective should affect us in the way that we think, and several reasons that God gives us His perspective. The first is that God gives His perspective to confirm his work. Look at verse 9. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So there are a lot of competing claims in this world about what God's work is. Some people say it's to help the poor. Some people say it's to save the rainforest and the endangered animals. Social justice, helping people feel good about their self-claimed identity, being healthy, wealthy, and happy. What is God's work? How do we know? Again, we look at the Bible. And so Zechariah says here, when this prophecy comes true, you will know that I am God's prophet. When, Ze- when Zerubbabel finishes this temple in the Spirit's power, you will know, it will confirm that that was God's work. So, side note, A true prophet's prophecies come true, okay? If someone says they're a prophet, 
and they make a prediction and it doesn't come true, they weren't a prophet. Okay? <laughs> That's really important to understand. The Bible never fails at that. All of its prophecies either have come true or we're waiting on them to come true. And Zerubbabel and Zechariah here say that when that happens, and it did happen, they finished the temple. They will know that it's God's work. So for us today, as a church, what is our mission? What is our work that God has called us to do? Well, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. So what is Jesus' mission? Building his church. If we want to be aligned with Jesus' mission, that must be our mission too. And how do we do that? At the end of Matthew, he tells us, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is the Great Commission. This is Jesus' mission for our church, to go and to make disciples to share the gospel with people so that they get saved and teach them how to follow Jesus in their lives. That is our mission. Jesus repeated some form of this command at least five times before he went back to heaven to his church. It was like his parting instructions. This is the last thing. Make sure you get this. So that is our mission as Rocky Mountain Bible Church, as Christians. Now this doesn't mean that you have to be in vocational ministry. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. This is for every Christian. So how do we do this? Well, it could be something as simple as participating in Bible study. Or when you come here to church and you see, talk to someone, and you encourage them, and you point them to God as their comfort and as their encouragement. It could be standing at the door to greet visitors and make sure that when someone walks in, they're not just standing around wondering what's going on, but they feel welcome. They know that they're loved. That is an important part of making disciples. It could be having someone over for dinner and reading the Bible together, or sharing the gospel with them. It could be praying for the church, like we mentioned. Or sometimes, pastors talk about this amongst themselves, we call it the ministry of showing up. It could just be showing up on Sundays. You have no idea how encouraging it is when you're just here, and you're listening, and you're engaged in, this, in the service. It makes me so happy. That is a ministry. And if we are doing even little things like that to try and make disciples, to help people follow Jesus, then we are doing God's work. We shouldn't look at ourselves and think, man, I'm so insignificant. 
I don't have any special abilities. You know, I can't do a piano solo or whatever. You don't have to be able to be magnificent to serve God. Like I've said, every single true Christian, everyone who has turned from their sin and trusted in Christ has the Holy Spirit living in them. And the Holy Spirit has given you gifts and abilities for the very purpose of serving in the church to build it up. That is why the Holy Spirit empowers us. So don't feel like, well, I just can't do anything. What are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? And how can you do that to serve others and glorify God? And then you just rely on the Spirit to do that. That's how we serve in the church. And so when we look at the Bible, it should either tell us, it should confirm in our lives that yes, I am doing God's work, or it can show us that no, I'm not really doing God's work and I need to change that. That's why we need something objective like the Bible to teach us. So God gives his perspective to confirm his work. And then next, he gives his perspective to guide our values. Look at verse 10. For who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So what is this talking about here? Well, again, this was a ragtag bunch of Israelites who'd come home. Other bigger nations were opposing them, fighting against them, making fun of them. And they were scorning them, saying, Psh, this work that they're doing, it's never going to succeed. Look how small, look how insignificant they are. They don't matter. And I mean, that's how the world works, right? Our society tends to glamorize. We celebrate the things that are big and powerful, big technology companies, famous celebrities and sports stars, and even huge mega churches with thousands and thousands of people. The world thinks, wow, that's the best. That's not what God values, though. God doesn't necessarily value massive numbers or huge budgets or massive fancy buildings. It says that the seven eyes of the Lord, which is just a figure of speech for God's perfect knowledge of everything, sevens the number of perfection, they scan throughout the whole earth and they will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So when Zerubbabel is measuring out the work on the temple, that something that might seem so small and so insignificant to the world, God's looking over the whole planet and he looks at that and he rejoices in it. And so for us, you could imagine God's looking over this world right now and he says, Bill Gates, meh. Jeff Bezos, meh. President of the United States, meh. I don't, he says, I don't really care about those things. But then he looks at us and he says, whoa, there's Rocky Mountain Bible Church. This tiny little church in the middle of Utah that's trying to do my work 
And they're there worshiping me this Sunday. And he says, I rejoice in that. Isn't that awesome? The world might look at us and think, they're so small. Who cares about them? God looks at us and says, I love that. I rejoice in what you are doing. That is awesome. And so as we think about our church, it can be really easy to get discouraged, to think, man, we are small. But we must think about it as we are being faithful and God rejoices in that faithfulness. And so God gives his perspective to us to guide our values, that we value what God values, not the flashy, big buildings and massive attendance crowds and things like that, but faithfulness to him and his word. And then lastly, God gives his perspective to encourage his servants Verses 11 to 14 say, I asked him, what are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold conduits from which golden oil pours out? Then he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And when it says in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones, that clues us in to what he's talking about. Throughout the Old Testament, there were two positions, two offices that were anointed with oil, the king and the priest. And so he's talking here about the high priest, Joshua, and Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of King David. Now, Zerubbabel wasn't ruling as a king at this time, but he was the governor over Israel at this time period. And so God is saying that Joshua and Zerubbabel are like these two olive branches. They're these two servants of the Lord, and they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do God's work. Outwardly, they might look unimpressive. Like we said in the vision, it's probably just two little branches of olives not really something to get excited about. But in reality, and from God's perspective, they have been anointed and empowered by God himself to serve God. That's the idea when it says they're standing by the Lord of the whole earth. They're standing by, kind of like a waiter at a fancy restaurant might stand by and wait to help you, to serve you. They're standing by to serve the Lord. And think about this. It might be pretty neat if you met someone and they said, yeah, I'm the personal secretary to the mayor of Brigham City. You'd be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, that's a nice position. Well, then let's say you meet someone and they say, I'm the personal secretary to the president of the United States. You'd think, wow, now... That's a step above Brigham City. Like, that's honor right there. But these people are servants of God, of the Lord of the whole earth. Not just Brigham City, not just America, the whole 
world, God himself. And we as Christians, as I've mentioned already, if you have trusted in Christ, he has given you his spirit and he has empowered you to be a servant of the Lord of the whole earth. That's amazing. What an honor. What a privilege to be able to do that. And so when we look at ourselves from our perspective sometimes, it can be really easy to think, man, I just, I can't do this. I, I don't have anything special. But God looks at you and says, I've given you my Holy Spirit. You have gifts from the Spirit that you can use to serve me. You are in a position of honor to serve God himself. That is the encouragement that God gives us in this vision. That even though outwardly we might look at ourselves or others might look at ourselves and think, well, they're nothing special. But from God's perspective, we are his servants. He has given us everything that we need to serve him. And that is an honor. That is a privilege. That is wonderful. And that is the perspective that we need if we're going to serve God. Because sometimes it's not glamorous work. Coming here to the church and cleaning the toilets is not glamorous work. But it needs to be done so that our building looks nice on Sundays. And I'm very grateful for those of you that do come and clean the church. Thank you for that. That is a position of honor if you're doing it for God's glory. So God's work must be done with God's power and God's perspective. I hope you can see why this chapter is so important for our church, especially at this moment in its history. We are small and we might seem weak and insignificant. And the work in front of us is like trying to climb Mount Everest. We cannot do it in our own strength. We have to have the Spirit of God working in us and through us for the glory of God. But because we're weak, because we're small, we are in the perfect position. It's like God has pulled out all of our props to make us rely on him alone. And so we are in the perfect position to have God's power for God's glory. And so we need to pray and pray and pray that God would work in us through his spirit. And when it gets tough, it can be easy to get discouraged. But we must go to the word of God and have his perspective on our ministry so that we find encouragement and strength to keep pressing forward. That's why we need God's power and God's perspective. So let's pray and ask him for that now. God, your goodness to us and your graciousness to us are far beyond what we can understand. Thank you that you have given your children your spirit, that we can know you, 
and that we can be empowered to serve you. Help us individually and as a church to walk in the Spirit and to have the Spirit's power in our lives and ministry. And Lord, we know that things are difficult. Life is not easy. And so when we face difficulties, when we experience weakness, for whatever reason, help us to look at things from your perspective, to know that those trials are part of your love for us, to empower us, to know that in the world's eyes, even though we might seem small, you rejoice in our faithful acts of service. God, thank you. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you as their Savior, I beg of you that your Spirit would work in their hearts and draw them to Christ to be saved. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen.